Psalm 39, as we consider God's holy word together at the close of this Lord's day. What a blessing. Psalm 39, God's holy word. Please give your attention to its reading. To the choir master, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord. And give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O Father, we come before your word now and ask that you, by your Spirit, would speak mightily to us, and we seek to open our ears, but we know that you need, we need your power, and thus we ask that you would come and speak through your Spirit and through your Word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, as we saw in our catechism lesson, to say that you believe in God's providence And in the way that we express this doctrine of providence is to say that you believe that he is in control of every atom in this universe. It's all held by his decree. Nothing happens outside of that decree. Some people may find this to be a, a doctrine of tyranny and control. There are many ways that we can speak against that, the way that Reformed people have talked about the relationship of first causes and second causes of God's freedom and our freedom. Of course, we know that we do not go through this world as robots, and some of that is mysterious to us, how God can certainly be absolutely sovereign in everything, and everything is held by His decree, and yet as we live our lives, things can often seem so random. But this doctrine of of providence is indeed a great comfort to us. Some people, those people who would say, well, this is a, a tyrant God or a controlling God who makes everyone automatons. But to us, of course, it is a great comfort, which is exactly where uh, the catechism goes. This doctrine is understood through what? Well, through redemption. And that's why we, we sang that song. 
that why can we say it is well with our soul? We can say it is well with my soul because my sin has been dealt with in Jesus Christ. Because I will one day look upon the Lord. I will see the face of my Savior. There's an end to our story. We know that God, by His sovereignty, is bringing us to that end. So we can say it as well, because He is the one who is fit to do that. He is the one who has the the, the proper kind of sovereign love and control of this universe. It is like the uh, conductor of of a symphony. And I've been to a symphony a few times, but... When you see the the conductor, the one who's going to conduct the symphony, enter the room, what I've seen is people tend to get a little quiet. They're reverent as he enters the room and and goes to take his place. And why do they do that? Because this is the man who is equipped. This is the man who has had the training and the experience to be able to bring all of these little parts together. Everyone sitting there is an amazing musician. But all of these little parts together to create this wonderful symphony of melody and harmony and music. You think of, you know, if we were to to sit in the throne of God, knowing what we know, would we have anything close to the ability to make all of the atoms of the universe come together so that all of God's people or even just ourselves would be able to be brought to that last day, loving Jesus more? and more conformed to the image of Christ. You see, uh, the terrifying thought for us is that God would not be absolutely providential and sovereign in everything. That's the the terrifying thought. We need God to, to be this, to be sovereign and in control. This means, of course, that we resign ourselves to God's control. And that we, we cannot change when we don't like our circumstances. We don't like the way things are going and we want to change our opinions about God or we want to lob accusations at Him. What does it mean to believe in God's sovereignty and His, His providence? So tonight we are looking to, seeking to know something of what we would call holy silence. It doesn't mean you never speak. But here in Psalm 39, we have uh, on display for us a holy silence under distress and affliction. Sometimes in Scripture, it's described as waiting on the Lord, waiting quietly for Him, waiting for Him to show up with His favorable presence, that His providence might smile upon us once again. These are the ways we talk about it. Sometimes it is stillness properly recognizing the majesty of God, and thus we remain still. Sometimes it is described as silence. Psalm 39, verse 9, I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. And that verse will be the center of our consideration tonight. I am mute, I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. It is not grumbling or murmuring at the works of God. It is not seeking to get out of our afflictions by sinful means. We'll talk about this later, but we can seek to free ourselves from our afflictions, but we cannot seek to free ourselves from our afflictions sinfully, as if sin is not more evil than our affliction. You have to remember that the least sin is worse than the greatest affliction. It, is, it means to not be vexed and confused when things don't go our way, as if God must be confused. God must have gotten something wrong. 
He must have made some mistake in order to bring me into this miserable situation. It's not accusing God or blaming him, which reveals a a heart of of unbelief. Holy silence is this. It's a, a gracious resignation unto God, such that in every circumstance, even in difficulties, we are joyfully reliant upon and surrendered to him. Holy silence is a gracious resignation unto God, such that in every circumstance, even in difficulties, we are joyfully reliant upon and surrendered to him. Nahum chapter 1 verse 6 says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. God looks upon the heart. He knows those who from the heart are still finding their refuge in him in the day of trouble. And so those who have looked into the glories of Jesus Christ, who have uh, trusted in the gospel of grace, who have their spiritual standing, the verses 3 and 4 of that hymn are so beautiful, they work together so wonderfully, the whole song, but verses 3 and 4, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, is nailed to the cross, I bear it no more, praise the Lord, O my soul. For that reason it is well with my soul, because I am right with God. And then secondly, since I am right with God, he is in his sovereign providence bringing me to that day when the trump will resound and and the Lord shall descend. There's an end to our stories and we have to trust that he is bringing us to that end in the way that only he knows how, for he is God only wise. See, where has God won our trust? He's won our trust in Jesus Christ. We must have a a gospel-centered view of the providence of God. We can talk about the, the perfections of God and the attributes of God, and all of those things are great, but it is centered upon Christ. It is centered upon the, the covenant of grace, that God has given us these, these blessings to allow us to say, yes, I can be patient when things go wrong, for I know that my standing in Christ does not change. So what are the ingredients of holy silence? We're going to think about a few of these together. What are the ingredients of of this holy silence that we are seeking? Well, the first is this. See God in your circumstances. You have to see God in your circumstances. The Manichaeans, there's a Gnostic religion in the first few centuries around the, the establishment of the New Testament church that endured for many centuries, but it's not around anymore Manichaeans believed that all affliction was from the devil. Everything bad in their lives was from Satan. You see this sometimes with people having something of this mindset, even though Manichaeanism is uh, out of vogue, certainly. They tend to think that the devil has gotten control of their life somehow as they face difficult circumstances. I had something of this experience. There's a Standing, uh, standing in front of a woman in line at a store. That's a wonderful thing that's been introduced to our society, by the way. Standing in line at stores since COVID. That has really picked up, huh? So I'm standing in line at a store, and there's a lady behind me, a couple people behind me. She's speaking very loudly with her friend. And I commend her for speaking about spiritual things and, and being open about them. But you're talking about all of these problems in her life and how it, it must have been the devil who had gotten hold of the reins somehow. And that tends to be what what people think. But the devil can bring nothing into our lives except what God allows. Isn't that right? Thus, 
we must see God at work behind it. And that's the wonderful lesson there in, in the catechism lesson. God is the one who can bring good out of seeming evil, and he reveals to us the evil in what seems good. We have a lot of ideas about how our life should go, what we need or what we ought to have, but those things may never come. And we remind ourselves that God withholds nothing from us that is needful for us. He reveals that which is evil in what seems good, and he brings out the good in the seeming evil. Psalm 39, verse 9 what does it say? I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. The, the psalmist here, David, is saying, I will remain silent as I process all of these things because I know that God's hand is in my life. I know that he is the one who is leading me and guiding me and directing me. He leadeth me. Oh, blessed thought. It's a wonderful song when things are going well, isn't it? When things are not going so well, it may be a more difficult song to sing, even though it's just as beautiful. He leadeth me, he leadeth me by his own hand. He leadeth me, right? I remain silent because he has done it. What about the story of Job? We read that earlier. Job, of course, very famously, the devil goes into, uh, into heaven and he says, well, and the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And, and Satan says, well, if things weren't going so well for him, he certainly would, would turn his back on you. And the Lord gives Satan some room to harm him physically, materially. But then what, if, what does Job say in chapter 1? When everything is taken away from him, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, even in Job's own mind and heart, he's seeing God is the first cause behind all of the things that are happening. He is in control. He is sovereign. So we look to the, the first cause, especially in our afflictions, that God is in our circumstances. A second cause may be cancer. A second cause may be someone who has wronged you or cheated you or hurt you. Or it could be any kind of circumstance that you do not want. But... If you understand God behind it in your circumstances, by his providence, it changes the way you view it. This would be in the little things, too. There was uh, someone who taught me this lesson. Yeah, have you ever been stuck behind the school bus in the morning or in the afternoon? And what happens, right? Every, every couple blocks, the school bus stops, and then the stop sign comes out, the kids get out. It can be very frustrating after a while. Maybe with the kids it makes it a little bit easier, right? You're, so let's say you're stuck at the train. That's, good. That's a way of life around here. You're stuck at the train, and what are you? Automatically you're frustrated, right? Has it happened outside of the sovereignty of God? No, it's actually an opportunity. God's giving us an opportunity to rest in him. Stuck behind the school bus, what I've learned to do, you start praying for these kids that come out of the school bus. Pray that the Lord would reveal himself to them and perhaps uh, save them if they do not know him savingly already. All of a sudden, the circumstances of your life that you do not want, it's not the devil trying to make you miserable, it's your father refining you, conforming you to the image of Christ. There's an ancient story about a man who was uh, resisting arrest, fighting with all of his might, uh, until the soldiers said that they were sent by the emperor. 
And at that moment, the man stops, to re- stops resisting. He says, well, if you're from the king, if you're from the emperor, then I'm going with you. If we understand that our circumstances are from the king of kings, then we will not be so resistant to them and seek to find God's hand in them. Thomas Brooks says this, if God's hand is not seen in affliction, the heart will do nothing but fret and rage under affliction. So the first ingredient of holy silence in affliction is this, that you see God in all of your circumstances. Nothing comes to you outside of his decree. Then secondly this, having seen God, do you remember his majesty? Having seen God in your circumstances, do you remember his majesty? His ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts. Go back to the example of Job. Job was making his case, especially to his friends in that interaction with his friends, that he didn't do anything overtly to deserve this. That uh, so far as he was living his life before his fellow man, he was blameless. And Job was a, a righteous man, as the Lord said about him. His friends don't believe him. Surely you did something. They're combing through his life. What have you done in order to bring this affliction upon yourself? And Elihu comes to confront Job, and he doesn't come to confront Job about the way he isn't a righteous man. He comes to confront Job that he has forgotten the majesty of God. There's one thing he's not been considering, because as he's looking at this and he's struggling to make sense of it all, and certainly you have sympathy for Job, struggling to make sense of losing his family and his property and going from a wealthy man to essentially completely miserable in every way struggling to put it together, and Elihu comes to him and he says, what you are failing to consider is that God is so infinitely majestic and holy and sovereign that there are things that he does that are a complete mystery to us, to which we have no answer and we never will. Job 38, where the Lord is speaking for himself, The Lord says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Were you there, Job? Job 40. So then the Lord goes through all of these things and and he is, is revealing to Job his majesty. And then in, verse, in chapter 40, Job answered the Lord, and he says, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. The Lord does not stop there, though, in chapter 40. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. I am in, I am on the throne, Job. You're not. We need to remind ourselves of the majesty of God. What does seeing God's majesty produce? It produces humility and a quietness of soul. These are two things which adorn the soul to be like Christ in ways few things do. Humility and a quietness of soul, a a resignation unto God and a trust in what he's doing. 
We remember God's majesty and we keep silent before him. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Psalm 46, very famously, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. And God is majestic. And then what does it say? Be still. Know that I am God. Right? Be silent before me. And know something of who I am. For I am a refuge in times of trouble. You keep silent before my majesty. Zephaniah 1 verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God. 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Thomas Brooks, Thomas Brooks says this, A man never comes to humble himself, nor to be silent under the hand of God, until he comes to see the hand of God as a mighty hand. Have you seen the hand of God to be a mighty hand? So first you see God's you see God's presence in all of your circumstances. Secondly, you remind yourself of God's majesty. Then third, you see God's work. You remind yourself that he is doing something in all of your circumstances. Why does affliction come? Or for that matter, why does prosperity come? See, God does not afflict carelessly. He does not afflict mischievously. He's not up there trying to see what kind of trouble he can cause us. He does so as a perfect and a sovereign father. God allows affliction to come so that we might learn to trust him in the midst of it, so that he might wean us off of some kind of sin, so that he might bring us forth out of unbelief, Prosperity comes that we might be trusted to use our time and our gifts and our blessings to serve the Lord. It's not as if prosperity comes and the difficult questions go away. Prosperity still presents us with some pretty challenging questions. How are you going to use the blessings that God has given you to serve Him and to honor Him in all that you do? See, it still are many challenges and many things to which we are called in the midst of prosperity. But we acknowledge, we must acknowledge, as we think about what is he going to do, we begin by reminding ourselves of his goodness and his love. He is good and he loves us. So God is good. Psalm 119 says this, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise, according to your promise to your servant. God never afflicts, but in faithfulness. He loves us as a father. He is bringing about our good. He is always weaning us off of the flesh. He is always dealing with our sins, which may be outward and may require some particular kind of affliction that is more direct. Our sins may be uh, more inward and sinister. Psalm 119 again says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 
It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. See, that's, that's holy silence. A gracious resignation unto the work of God in your life. Afflictions often root out our pride, envy, lust, and thus we should be thankful that we are to be rid of these sins. The least sin is less to be desired than the greatest affliction. Say that again. The least sin is less to be desired than the greatest affliction. One Puritan puts it this way, as black soap makes white clothes, so sharp afflictions make holy hearts. The whole, this whole mentality is summed up quite nicely in Lamentations chapter 3. It says, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Holy silence. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Here's the promise. For the Lord will not cast off forever, which we know, which we can be certain of, We will not be afflicted forever, either in this life or in the next. We know that God will bring us to a happy end. He's bringing us to a happy end. So he will not cast off forever. It is not forever. And then, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So it is in the midst of our grief, it is in the midst of our affliction, that the God of the universe especially has compassion on his people. That's when his heart is kindled towards us. For he does not, Lamentations finishes, for he does not willingly afflict or grieve the children of man. So what do you do? You must worship God in these things. We've interacted a little bit less with Psalm 39 than than I wanted to, but we must worship God in our afflictions. You notice the beginning half of that psalm. The psalmist David is, is being... Uh, challenged with all of these things that are presented to him. He's angry. His heart is growing hot within him. He says, I must speak. I must now uh, finally say something. And what does he say? You expect him to, to curse his enemies, perhaps. But what does he say? He worships God. Here he is filled with worshipful language. O Lord, make me know my end, verse 4, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. It's almost as if he's tempted to be filled with self-interest at the beginning, to be filled perhaps with self-pity, but he forces himself to be reminded of the God whom he worships. Lord, let me know that comparatively to you, I am nothing. Let me know that I am fleeting. You are eternal. You are the God who is always there. So what do you do in your affliction? Worship God. You need the worship of God. You need to be in the presence of his people. You need to hear the word preached to you. You need to hear uh, the glories of our voices joining together to raise exaltation to Christ that you might be built up. Worship God in your afflictions. Remember, see him in your afflictions. See his majesty. Remind yourself of how he works and then worship him. As we close, just a, a couple of, of things. What, what holy silence is not? Well, it's not stoicism. It's not trying to, to uh, put emotion and feeling to the side. Psalm 39, the psalmist is in anguish, isn't he? And he verbalizes that. He vocalizes that. 
And so we are to feel and recognize that we are in much affliction. But here's the question. Are we groaning or are we we grumbling? We may groan. We may not grumble against God. The biblical phrase, how long, O Lord, is a great guide. We can say, how long, O Lord? How long? Because that still recognizes that his hand is in it, and he will be the one who brings us to the end of our affliction. So holy silence is not stoicism. It it feels affliction. Holy silence prays for the end of our affliction, and it searches for the end. Someone will say, well, if God has brought this upon me, then I guess I sort of need to just stay here and and not do anything about it. No, we pray for the end, and we search for the end. Look at our psalm itself, verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. We pray that God would, would end our afflictions. James 5, verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Psalm 50, verse 15, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. So you pray for the end, and you search for the end. When someone is diagnosed with some sickness, cancer, or anything else, it doesn't mean that you can't go seek to have that treated or to use the means that God has given to us that we may be freed from these things. Someone may say, well, if it comes from God, then you shouldn't be treated by doctors. You shouldn't. Well, that's not what we're saying at all. We pray for the end. We search for the end. And then holy silence is not, finally, it's not so silent that it does not teach others. Holy silence is happy to teach others about what it means to be graciously resigned and surrendered to God. Look at the example of David who blesses God's people with this psalm. It may be the greatest thing you give to people around me in terms of your Christian witness to show patience and humility under the afflicting hand of God when his providence is not smiling upon you, when his favorable presence is removed or when afflictions come. So as the people of God, we are to give ourselves to God. Why? Because in Christ, he has already given himself to us. We love him because he first loved us. God has proven himself in the gospel of Jesus Christ that he is always worthy of our trust and will always bring us and is always working to bring us to our heavenly destination. By his grace, let us cast ourselves down before his holy majesty, before his word. And may he give us this holy silence in the midst of our affliction, which sees God in our circumstances, which is reminded of his majesty and the nature of his work, and thus worships him, is humble before him, and prays to him all along.